0: in uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 12, verses 12 to 32 this morning. And I think if you have your pew Bible, if you could turn there, it's uh, page 762 in the Black Bible. This last little while, we have been going through the book of Corinthians, and you can see our foundation stones have all been moved away, thank you, whatever brave, strong men did that. Um, And... uh, We finished up that series, and now we enter into a time when we're going to do these, uh, obviously, Easter. And then after that, just some reflections on why Jesus came to die and what he did for us on the cross. And uh, so, because we spent basically ten weeks in Corinthians, we're going someplace totally different now. So I just want to take one minute and sort of set some context. We've been with the Apostle Paul. He's been answering very practical questions about church life. He's been dealing with divorce and... um, you know, uh, idols and and uh, things of that nature. And, and just sort of for 10 weeks there, we've been right down sort of in the weeds or at the, at the ground level in what's going on in the Christian life with the Apostle Paul in the church and how our Christian walk goes. But here in this particular time and this particular week, we sort of have to take a deep breath and zoom way out because we're looking at God's big picture plan for humanity. We're not down in the weeds of what's going on in the church. We are way up on one of those balloons up in the stratosphere, and we can see the whole thing from horizon to horizon. And so you just sort of have to take a deep breath and kind of zoom up in the air and see the big picture here, and that's what we're looking at. We're looking at this big master plan of God and what he is doing, especially as it takes place in this week. 2,000 or so years ago, as sort of everything comes to this point in the life of Jesus and in the life of creation in reality. So that's where we're going, and uh, hopefully you'll be able to come along with me uh, on that. Let's open up the Word of God, John 12, 12 to 32. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast, it's the feast of Passover, Jerusalem. Heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm leaves and they went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your King is coming, sitting on a donkey colt. And his disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. And the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. And so the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you're gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. And now among those who went up to worship at the feast, were some Greeks. And so these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus, and Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice Father God, we just ask that you would bless our time together, that you would take your Holy Scripture and place it in our hearts and in our minds. Father, most of all, that you would lift any veil of doubt or blindness or cynicism, that we would truly learn from your word and that it would transform us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. What I'm looking at in this text, and as we had the the children up here and waving the palm branches and the triumphal entry and Jesus coming in and all of that, in this text we go on from there just a little bit farther, and what I wanted to do as I was meditating on this this week was verse 27 where Jesus is speaking about the current circumstances that he finds himself in now in Jerusalem in Passover week for the final time, standing at the temple, his disciples around him after this triumphal entry. And he says, now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? And so in general, what I want to get at this morning is I want to understand how Jesus feels at this moment. That we can sort of go back 2,000 years and really get into our hearts and our minds what Jesus is preparing for. How Jesus feels and why he feels that way. Point one and two I'll sort of do together. And then thirdly, that in spite of how he's feeling, what his aim is and what he's purposed to. And so how does Jesus feel and, and why does he feel that way? Well, Jesus is nearing the end of his time of teaching and ministering on earth. He spent his last few years healing the sick, as you know, and curing the lame and casting out demons, and he's been teaching people about the Father and teaching people about himself, and he's been correcting the spiritually blind, and he's been strengthening the spiritually lame, and he's spent his time opening the eyes of those who would see through his teaching that the kingdom of God is not what they expected, that the kingdom of God is something far more than what they think it is. And he's just performed one of his greatest miracles, raising Lazarus from the dead after over three days in the grave. This is not like the sick, you know, girl who just sort of Seemingly, maybe she just fainted or fell into a coma and then recovered or whatever. No, no, this is Lazarus dead three days. His body stinks at this point, and he raises him from the dead, and all these crowds have gathered to see and to testify of this great miracle. And now he rides into Jerusalem, and he rides in on the back of a donkey to fulfill prophecy, but also in the matter of a returning victorious general who would ride into town on his horse and the palm branches and the cloaks would be laid down and so he returns to jerusalem in this way and fulfilling prophecy in this manner of victory and the crowds have seen the miracle and they followed and they're shouting to god hosanna and hallelujah and he has a throng of disciples following him and the city is stirred up realizing that this is potentially the eternal Messiah. The crowds in the other Gospels, if you read Luke, they recognize that he's the eternal Messiah. And he says in verse 27, the gates are hardly behind him. He says, now my soul is troubled. He's troubled. He's downcast. He's restless. It's a word, the Greek word there is terozo, and it's a word that is used for any other people And used for his disciples, it's even used of Herod, it means that a fear has fell upon their soul. He's disturbed. He's troubled. And it's used here, this word, the first time of Jesus and his soul. And so after this miraculous resurrection that brought his friend back, who won him so many followers, and everybody is talking about it, and on the heels of his triumphal entry, and everybody singing... Shouldn't he be feeling like the rest of the city? Shouldn't Jesus be feeling the way his disciples feel? Everybody is excited. Everybody is thrilled. This is Messiah. We finally get it. And he's come. Our king is here. And they're overjoyed. It's time to party. But the gates are hardly behind him. And he's standing there in the temple in the midst of his disciples and the crowd around him. And he says out loud, My soul is troubled. The soul of Jesus is troubled. Why is Jesus feeling that way now? After everything that has just happened? Well, it's true. That he has been obediently teaching and healing. And he's been casting out demons. And his ministry has been correcting the Pharisees and and showing people the light. And correcting the misunderstanding of the law. And teaching people the nature of God. And he's been revealing the kingdom of God to his people all these years. But they just keep falling away. They keep leaving him. They don't stay. They don't want to hear what he says. It's too hard for them. They say this is a hard teaching and they depart. And he's always hunted. They want to capture him. They want to trick him. He's just gaining enemies. They want to insult him. They want to disparage him. John 1 says he came to his own, and his own received him not. And this hostility is escalating. It's closing in on him. The people around him even are suffering for it. Just a little while ago, his cousin and his friend and his prophetic forerunner, John the Baptist, was just imprisoned and then beheaded because of what he said about Jesus. And he's had to escape from his enemies, and he's had to slip away. And his friend Lazarus died. And although Jesus just raised him from the dead, it actually says that there is actually a plot right now to go and kill Lazarus too. They literally want to bury Jesus' miracle. We can't have this Lazarus guy running around alive. We've got to go kill him and put him back in the grave. And so all of this is true no matter how many times he tries to explain it to his people. They don't believe what is his te- they don't believe him. and the disciples keep falling away. And so he has approached and he's entered Jerusalem for what he knows is the last time, because even with the shouting and the singing and the palm branches and the cloaks laid before him and the Hosannas and the hallelujahs, Jesus knows that the people are still blind to the reality, that that's what's going on. He knows that as soon as they realize they are not going to get their overthrow of the Roman Empire, that Jesus has not come into some sort of strange military or political or, or uh, you know, religious coup d'etat, and Rome is still going to be there, and they realize that Jesus is not delivering them in the way that they expect in this world, that they are immediately going to turn on him to have him crucified. He knows this. He knows they're singing today, but they're going to be chanting to kill me in a week, because they still don't get it. I'm not here to take care of this silly little Roman empire. I'm here for a greater purpose. And no matter how many times he tries to explain it to the people, even explain it to his own disciples, up to till this point, they still don't believe him. You know, even as we read in the text there, it's only afterwards that John is able to put in the annotation that the disciples, you know, realize that, oh yeah, after he was dead... <laughs> Now I understand what was going on. They still didn't believe it. Peter refused to believe that Jesus had to go up to Jerusalem to to die. It doesn't matter how many times he tries to explain what's going on. They just don't believe him. The only sign they're going to have is Jonah. Tear down this temple and he'll rebuild it in three days. In this text, he just finished speaking these words to Andrew and Philip and whoever else was there. He said, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. (laughs) They still don't get it. Jesus is here to die, and they're not getting it. So he says, the hour has come. And so at this point, standing in the temple, Jesus is fully aware of what is going on here. Despite the cheers and the singing and the triumphal ride, the hour that he was born for has finally arrived. And it means his abandonment. It means his torture. It means his shame. And it means his death. And Jesus knows that in a few days, Judas is going to betray him. Peter is going to deny him. The disciples are going to abandon him. His own father, God, will turn his back on him. He is shortly going to be sweating blood in a garden outside the walls of Jerusalem, desperate for another plan, desperate for another way to save his people that doesn't involve him going to the cross. But there's no other way. There is no other plan except what is set before him, and he must endure it. And so Jesus sees all of this. Jesus knows all of this is coming, right? And it says here in the text in verse 27, and his soul is troubled. His soul is troubled because there's no other plan. Later on in verse 27, we go back there and it says, and he says, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I've come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. What's he asking? He's saying, should I ask to be saved? Should I call down the legion of angels? Right? He can do that. Should I ask God to revoke his promise, or should I, Jesus, simply refuse to continue and the amazing thing here is, we sort of lose the context, but the amazing thing here is that Jesus is saying and asking all of this out loud. He's talking out loud in front of the crowd that is around him. He's having this sort of inner turmoil struggle and he's asking himself the question. He's confessing that his own fear. He's making plain his desperation that he's wrestling with the plan that God has for him. And it's all in front of this crowd. But... He says, however, the word is Allah, not Allah with an H, just A-L-L-A, Allah, but set in opposition to this idea of being saved from this hour, Jesus says, in opposition to that idea that I would shrink back from this, this is my purpose, I've come for this hour. Father, glorify your name. And at that point, there's this huge sigh of relief in creation, (laughs) right? Right? Because you have the Son of God and the Son of Man standing in the temple in Jerusalem on the eve of the Passover sacrifice. Okay, so there are tens of thousands, of pe- hundreds of thousands, a million people in Jerusalem, and there are hundreds of thousands of animals there to be sacrificed at Passover. They were literally slaughtered, tens of thousands, excuse me, of sheep. And he's standing there in the temple, and I'm sure he can hear the noise of those sheep and the smell of those animals that are going to be sacrificed. And his own sacrifice is right there in front of him. He's going to be the lamb. And he's going to decide what he is going to do, facing the reality of the cross. This is really happening. This has all really just got really real for Jesus. And he says this is my purpose father glorify your name and that's the point when the people should be cheering that's the point when people should be singing hosanna that's the point when people should be singing hallelujah that's when the creation breathes a sigh of relief because jesus is not going to shrink back but instead they're just standing there dumbfounded <laughs> like they're just i don't they don't even understand what is going on they're not cheering or singing they have no idea of the significance of this point In time. That the aim of Jesus is that God would glorify His name through His obedience. And so Jesus knows His purpose. God, glorify Your name in my obedience, in my sacrifice. I'm not going to relent. I am not going to turn away. Nobody takes my life. I give it willingly. And so Jesus says at the end of this prayer, this sort of internal prayer that he's sort of saying out loud, he sort of his soul is troubled. But at the end of the prayer, his his prayer to God is, Father, glorify your name. You do that, God. You do that, Father. You glorify your name. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. As Christians, we make much of the glory of God because God makes much of his glory. And there is nothing in the universe greater than God. There is nothing more deserving of glory than God. There is nothing more beneficial for us than for God to get the glory that he deserves. Because the glory of God is full of grace and truth. It says, Behold the glory of God in John 1, 14 and 16. It says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Why is it good for us? For God to make much of his name. Why is it good for us? For God to glorify his name. Because the glory of God is the grace upon us. First John 2.12, he says, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. Psalm 25:11 for your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Psalm 115, 1, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Jeremiah 14:7 though our iniquities testify against us, act, O Lord, for your name's sake, for our backslidings are many and we have sinned against you. Psalm 79 9, help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name, deliver us, and atone for our sins for your name's sake. And many, many other references that I could go to that tell us that the whole point of the whole universe is to make much of God. And God makes much of his glory in the saving of his people through the obedience of his Son. Philippians 2, eight obedience to the point of death, even death on a cross. Back to the account of the Gospel of John here. Jesus asked God to glorify his name. He prays for God to glorify his name. And God answers Jesus' public prayer publicly. Last part of verse 28 there. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. And the crowd that stood there, this is all in front of the crowd, in front of his disciples, whoever's there with them. The crowd that stood there heard it and said that it had thundered. And others said, an angel has spoken to him. And Jesus corrects them. He answers and he says, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. I'm the one person here who knows what's going on. (laughs) God answered my public prayer publicly for your sake. This is what it means. He answered it because now is the judgment of the world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. This is the point in history when stuff is happening. And when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. That's why God answered. That's the glory that he's talking about. God answers. He says, I have glorified my name, son, and I'll glorify it. I have glorified it in your life, and I will again, and I will multiply that glory here. The the phrase that I've glorified it, and I've glorified it again, it's more than just a a repetition, it's a multiplication, it's an emphasis. It's kind of like you remember when they talked about David, and they said, Saul has killed his thousands, and David his ten thousands. It's like a multiplication. It's like God is saying, I've glorified my name in your life. And I'm going to glorify it again 10,000 times in your death. God answers his prayer and says, I have glorified it. And I'll glorify it far more. So what is this greater glory? What is the glory that's coming? As if what Jesus had done was not already enough. He says that this is audible for us to hear, not for his sake. It was audible for us. You have proof what this is about. Jesus says, now is the judgment of the world. Now is Satan going to be cast out. Satan is defeated right here, and I'm going to be lifted up on a cross, and when I'm lifted up, I'm going to draw the nations to myself. And we're going to continue on those points next week. We're going to talk about what Christ accomplished, the drawing of people to himself as Jesus is lifted up. But this morning, on Palm Sunday, is to get our head and our heart around what Jesus is feeling. What's in his heart, his soul is troubled on the steps there because he knows what he has to go through. He knows there's no other plan. But he resolves right there in that moment that this is the purpose that he came for. When the angels sang to the the shepherds, you know, way back, this point roughly 33 years ago when jesus was born when the angels song sang at the arrival of jesus they sang glory to god in the highest and peace on earth to all men with whom god's pleased this is the purpose glory to god and drawing the nations to himself and jesus knows this this as his purpose and he knows this is the only way to do it And so at this point, when everybody's standing around dumbfounded, when the triumphal entry is behind him, and he's just standing there on the temple steps, and he knows he has to go into the ground and die in order to bear fruit, that's when the singing should be. That's when the Hosanna should be. That's when the Hallelujah should be. And they were missing it. But Jesus knew that his purpose, and he wasn't going to call down legions of angels, and he wasn't going to ask God to revoke his promise, and he wasn't going to step aside from the path that was before him. Nobody took his life. Rome didn't take his life. Satan didn't take his life. Not even God took his life. Jesus lays it down willingly to accomplish the glory of God's name. And that's why we make much of God, because making much of God is grace upon grace for us. So we're going to continue on this, these points as Jesus elaborates on these things of, of casting out Satan and drawing people to himself next week when we, when we look at the resurrection. But for this week, for Passion Week, my heart and my prayer would be that we just meditate upon the soul of Jesus, the choice that stood before him, The hostile environment that was closing in around him. The pain that he was going through to lose friends and family and disciples to death and to plots of murder. And the abandonment that he is going to face in order to be obedient, in order to bring glory to God. Not in the short term, but in the long term. And maybe your environment is getting a little bit hostile to you and your faith. And maybe the world, or your work, or your friends don't like much what you have to say about Jesus and the glory of God, or what you have to stand for to be obedient. Maybe there is a sacrifice you have to make to risk abandonment, to risk betrayal. The world is hostile to this message, but God is glorified in our obedience, We Christians, we all have the spirit of Christ in us, and we are all called to be little, itty-bitty, tiny Christ. We're all called to be little imitators of Christ. And so what can we say? That we will turn away from the hour that we've come to, the hour that God has put us on the earth and the time and the generation that we are in? Are we going to turn away from that? Or are we going to be little tiny imitators of Christ and say that this is our very purpose, that we be obedient and we bring We We ask that God be glorified even in our tiny little obedience. That we lay down our lives in just a small tiny way to imitate how Christ laid down his life in order that many can see Christ and many can be drawn to him to the glory of God. Let's pray. Father God, what an awesome time. Just awesome. Staggering. This week that we have a chance to just remember 2,000 years ago, and it's such a dim echo now, Lord, forgive us. But that week 2,000 years ago, that you pointed all of creation at, that you put the universe on the shoulders of your son, and the souls of all your children, Father, that we would understand the heart and the purpose of Jesus, that he faced what he faced to die for us, to draw us to him. And 2,000 years later, he's still drawing. Father, you choose to purpose to work through your son and then through us. Father, two, two things, Lord, that we would glorify Jesus and glorify you all the more from the understanding through your scripture and the revelation of your Holy Spirit, of what was going on right then, that we would not be standing by dumbfounded, but that we would see now. And secondly, that we would be encouraged. That no matter how toxic the environment, no matter how much there are plots against us, or how, who we might have to, or who might abandon us, or who we might have to offend, that we would learn from this prayer. that we would lay down our life in a tiny imitation of Christ to draw people to you and see your name glorified. And that we would believe your answer. I have glorified my name and I'll glorify it again. You will be glorified. Father, we just thank you. Incredible. Thank you for this week. Thank you that we can celebrate it together as a family and be encouraged. We give you all the praise and all the glory. Amen.